1: Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan. And Cassidy Zachary. Today, we are pleased to welcome past dressed guest, Dr.
2: Benjamin Wilde, back to the show. Ben, for those who might need a little refresher, well, he joined us for a very special Halloween episode last season with Lucy Clayton. Together, they are the wildly, and yes, that is a pun, and I'm going with it, wildly <laughs> entertaining and knowledgeable co-hosts of the wonderful podcast, Dress Fancy, on which they discuss all facets of fancy dress, what we call in America, costume. So Ben is here today to discuss his recently published book,
1: Carnival to Catwalk, Global Reflections on Fancy Dress Costume. Ben and Lucy joined us to discuss the fascinating history behind the tradition of dressing up for Halloween. And I would wager that many people really associate the act and art of dressing up in costume with these certain sorts of occasions. However, as we will discover in our conversation with Ben today, Fancy dress really transcends any such narrow categorization and definition. Just how he defines fancy dress as well as how he critically analyzes its use in different case studies throughout history and around the globe just may change how you, dress listeners, also understand the incredible importance of fancy dress costume to performative identity expression.
2: Yeah, it definitely changed how I look at it for sure. And I also want to provide one small note, Dress listeners, because Ben and I actually recorded this episode a few months back in the beginning of April. So please excuse it if some of our comments feel a bit outdated, especially in relation to current events and the state of the world in relationship to
1: COVID-19. Without further ado, Ben, welcome back to the show.
2: Ben, welcome back to Dress. It's such a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you,
3: Cassidy. It is lovely to be with you.
2: So you're back to talk to us about your new book, Carnival to Catwalk, Global Reflections on Fancy Dress Costume. Can you give us a little refresher on how you define fancy dress? You're very clear and specific with
3: your definition of what fancy dress is and what it is not. No, sure. And I think I remember when we had the conversation um, last year that this idea of sort of nomenclature terms is really important because... And indeed, I suppose, in, th- in terms of writing this book, wrangling with the definition, wrangling with with what we think of with um, fancy dress costume is probably one of the more difficult aspects because if we think about fancy dress costume, just saying that term, we all have, however painfully or, or, or joyfully, an image that probably comes into our mind. But if we then try and put that into words, and in the case of of a book, uh, try and think of a definition that is applicable to many different iterations of fancy dress that becomes a bit more a bit more difficult. Um I think even that idea of talking about fancy dress costume bears out some of those problems, because if this were a book that I had written solely for an English audience, then I could just say fancy dress. Right. But in terms of an American audience, particularly, I think that suffix costume is important because, as I think we may have said before, the idea of fancy dress can mean that you're sort of suited or, or that you're just looking really, really smart. So I think that was that was one issue. I think another point is is worth saying that the idea of fancy dress or fancy dress costume doesn't really exist in Other languages, there's no sort of direct equivalent in French, in in, in German or in Italian and indeed in other parts of the world. Some of the terms that we might most readily associate with fancy dress masks, for example, um, again, not every um, language has a term or a single term for for those um, elements. So this was really tough and I'm expecting a, a whole host of sympathy from your, your listeners in terms of my, my my quandary. But in terms of how I ended up defining it for the book, I, I came up with the, the following, which I, I'll just read and then kind of pick apart what, what I was aiming for. So I describe fancy dress as a performative form of dress, imaginative and incongruous, that is worn for a discreet occasion and limited time, that disrupts the place of the individual within the social and political relationship of a specific community. Now that sounds a bit of a mouthful and and maybe sort of divorces us a long way from the kind of fun and excitement of a fancy dress. But I, I really wanted to try and think of a, a, a term, a series of descriptors that would apply as equally to the sort of child's fancy dress party, to street protests that we have seen increasingly across the world, um, to the sort of elite balls of the past and, and also continuing into the present as well. And I think for me, that idea of um, it being incongruous, so it's the circumstances in which an item of dress is being worn, not simply and solely being imaginative or creative. Because if you take, for example, a doctor's white coat, um, if we're in the doctor's surgery, then him, her wearing the white coat is completely acceptable and what we would expect. If, however, an individual is on a sort of evening soiree out for the evening and, and, and dressing in a white coat, it then becomes, in a sense, potentially fancy dress, not because the garment is imaginative or or creative, but the circumstance in which it's being worn is incongruous. We wouldn't expect to see that. I think what's also important for me is the idea of limited time. We can wear maybe creative, um, non-normative perhaps items of dress, but if we do that habitually, I then think we're maybe moving into style or fashion. I think what denotes fancy dress for me is something that is very much for a specific period that is often set apart socially, politically from our our, our daily routines. And again, is unexpected within whichever community that dress is worn, whether it's our friend network or whether it's a a kind of town gathering. If what we're wearing defies some of those norms and expectations, then again, we might be moving towards the, the, the category of fancy dress. So a lot to unpick and I, I kind of think and hope that, that that definition's done it. I haven't yet been told that uh, <laughs> it, 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 it falters, but I you know expect that at some point someone's going to say, well, hold on, what about this example? And then, of course, we can go from there.
2: <laughs> and I was actually really surprised to read uh, that this is the first book-length study of fancy dress because I find this particularly interesting considering, as you know in the book, that most people in the world at one point or another in their lives will have engaged with this often ephemeral and performative act of dressing in costume or fancy dress. Um, I must say, not only have you validated fancy dress as worthy of scholarly inquiry, you've also done it within a global context, which I am particularly interested in. And I'm curious, why was this important to your study of fancy dress?
3: I think it was important because, again, was wrestling with the definition, I wanted something that would... I think spark a discussion. I mean, I, as I, I really tried to make clear at the beginning of the text and throughout that I almost see this, although it is book length, um, I see it more as a sort of investigative essay where I'm posing questions and sort of throwing up sort of case studies for people to kind of mull over and ponder. Um, so it's very much the beginning of something rather than me sort of being, uh, I think, definitive. And I think you know, the best way of doing that is coming up with terms, coming up with ideas that are globally inclusive. Um, a dialogue isn't going to be particularly long running. It's not going to be particularly virtuous if it only applies for a particular part part of the world. I also think it, it's quite stimulating. And again, from an academic point of view, but also I think from a just a sort of general investigative point of view, extraordinary, again, just to think about how this, Thing, this sartorial form is just so culturally prevalent. And although I sort of went into the book believing that, and and had already selected global studies that I wanted to include, I think, as always, but well, I suppose any long project, it, it's only through working on it that you just think, wow, this is just so pervasive. And I think for the book not to have tried, I mean, how well I do it is for other people to decide, but. For it not to have grappled with that, I think would have been would have been challenging. But I also think that idea of a global perspective is so important because when we think about fancy dress as it's relayed in the media today, it's often caught up with ideas of cultural appropriation and decolonization. And I and I wanted, I think, to be able to speak to some of those issues and, and, and problems. And again, by thinking about Fancy dress in a global context and the cultural exchanges that have given rise to fancy dress. I, I hope I could, um, in some ways, contribute to that.
2: And one of the elements of fancy dress that you do find in cultures around the world is the mask. The mask it makes repeated appearances throughout your book, and it is perhaps one of the oldest forms of fancy dress. But it's also one of the most controversial because of its you know it has these subversive qualities and this ability to hide a person's identity. I'm, can you please tell us about the significance of this seemingly innocuous face covering historically and around the world? I mean, that's kind of a tall order and a big question, but maybe as it pertains to your
3: book. <laughs> I should rise to your challenge. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think you're right. I mean, when we do think of fancy dress, and probably if we were all personally to reflect on our first forms of dressing up, there was probably some sort of masked element, right, in the sense that we maybe think about sort of superheroes and whether we latch onto um, a sort of she or Batman or whatever it might be, that the, the eye concealing, the, the sort of um, top half of the face concealment is, is, often a, is often a feature. But I think for me, what is so interesting about the mask is that it is deeply paradoxical in the sense that a mask really doesn't disguise you. In any scenario that you wear the mask, you are making yourself much more conspicuous. Even if you, you know, let's say you, you rob a bank and you've got a mask on, um, that, that's making you more conspicuous. The right. fact that you're, you're robbing a bank is quite conspicuous as an activity in itself. But, you know, you're, you're not um, deflecting from your identity. You're actually saying, almost look at me. You're concealing a conventional identity, but I, I think you're drawing more attention to yourself. But I think here's the paradox although you may be after a mask drawing more attention to yourself, you are nonetheless creating a distance. You're creating a physical distance because people can't see the real you. You literally have a barrier over your eyes or your entire face. So there's that physical distance. There's also, I think, within that a psychological distance. You've created a space between you and the kind of outer world. And I think within that, that gives you more scope, and I suppose your, your audience, if you like, more scope to kind of contemplate um, issues of identity, self, you as the wearer of the mask, your role, um, and interaction with the with the people around you. So that means that the mask, I think, is deeply compelling because it enables us very instantly as individuals to contemplate questions of our identity, where we fit in, you know, and I think with a lot of sort of fancy dress elements, um, if you're dressing the body we habitually dress the body in, in different ways if we want to be more in business mode or more in creative mode. Um, but it's very rare that in any sort of circumstance, we would cover the face. That, there's always something quite different about that. The, the minute you start doing that, you're engaging in a very different sense of the presentation of, 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 of self. So I think that's quite compelling that the mask enables us to do that. But as I said, with that, there's always then a sense of subversion. And although, as we've said, fancy dress is culturally pervasive, often some of the very earliest accounts that, that we can have access to a fancy dress when it's been made into or made it rather into the written record. It's often in the written record of legislators and lawmakers and also naysayers who bemoan and criticize and express concern about people who are covering their faces because it's that idea that if in public you are concealing yourself in some form, what are you up to? If you are as a human concealing your identity, then you're maybe doing something that you shouldn't be doing. Um, And so some of the kind of most coherent accounts of fancy dress costume, not necessarily the earliest, but some of the the, the kind of earliest coherent and and fullest descriptions of, of, of fancy dress come, for example, from the late Middle Ages, early modern period, where you have discussions of laws or indeed surviving law codes, which prohibit the wearing of fancy dress in in public, and of course, those um, laws and stipulations still agree, um, still exist rather in certain parts of the United States where you can't wear masks, face coverings beyond sort of carnival time and and Mardi Gras, for example. So I think yes, that the mask is prevalent because it's through that more than any, I think, other single item of, of fancy dress or or, or or body adornment that we can enter into this sort of liminal space where we can play with, challenge ideas of identity. And I think, you know, to make it, I suppose, a, a contemporary link, you know, if we're thinking about the world as today with this extraordinary situation of the coronavirus, Many, many governments around the world have urged their citizens to remain at home. It's almost impossible to physically enforce that with um, police and, and, and legal authorities. It's reliant on a sense of cooperation, and that's often how government and social interactions work. They rely on cooperation between the rulers and the ruled. Wearing a mask, I think, challenges that because it's the rulers or perhaps even sometimes the ruled who are, by wearing the mask, almost absolving themselves of that that link in the chain. They're stepping out. And I think that's why a mask is fun to wear, but it can also be really quite frightening.
2: And I have to ask, Ben, because we are in the middle of COVID all around the world, all of us are dealing with COVID, and we are all now wearing face masks. So I'm hoping you can talk just a little bit about its new significance in the age of COVID-19.
3: Sure. And I think you're right. We have seen a a Enormous sort of transformation um, in terms of how we interact, both obviously online, but um, when we do venture out into the, the real world back onto the streets, you know, we're seeing people in a sense with half of their faces at least covered by these um, face masks. And I think that does make interactions um, very, very difficult and in some ways quite quite challenging because um, in the UK, at least, I don't know whether this was the same for America, you have some sort of scenarios where particularly in hospitals, the medical professionals are wearing face masks and, and maybe other forms of, of head covering. Um, and what they're finding, as indeed I think a lot of us are in our daily interactions too, is that's quite intimidating. The face is very expressive. I'm certainly always told that I have very expressive eyebrows. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, when you cover them, um, the face, even if it is sort of the mouth and, and the eyebrows and eyes are still still recognisable, you are sort of obfuscating that process of of human um, interaction. And I think in, in a real-world scenario, that's exacerbated by the fact that we have to keep a, a physical distance as well. So I think it's bringing a sense of a sort of artificiality to our interactions. It's also, I think creating a sense of um, unease it's maybe making us be more conscious about our physical um, interactions and I think you know as I was saying with regards to the the mask that the in general these ideas of different layers creating a sort of physical distance and psychological distance um, you know the, the face mask is, is is most certainly I think doing that too on the other hand though I think you know a positive is that. It gives us, if you like, a sartorial, but also sort of psychological control over our fate. One of the most frightening things about this pandemic is just how pervasive it has turned out to be Um, in the UK, certainly in the early months, so um, sort of February, March, when we were sort of teetering on um, an epidemic becoming um, a pandemic. One of the sort of major stories, and obviously subsequently turned out to be a myth, is that the pandemic would largely um, affect the the elderly or um, people beyond the ages of sort of, uh, of 60. And as I said, that's completely turned out to be um, a myth. But that sort of sense of us now or feeling vulnerable, yeah. I think means that the mask and wearing it can give us a, um, some physical sense of us combating this, um, in some ways, a sort of phantom menace. We can't see it, but at least by wearing the mask, we can feel, particularly in our public interactions, that we are doing something positive, we are doing something purposeful to try and give us a, a, a confidence that otherwise we've we possibly um, been denuded of. But I think it's also interesting, um, just sort of briefly to reflect, that aside from the, the face mask um, itself, I think this whole pandemic, has brought new attention to the the human the human face and the the human head I mean in terms of um, zoom or, or skype meetings that we're now probably all um, sort of sick to death of um, <laughs> but it, it's really only our, our upper bodies that are are visible in those in those meetings. And so um, I sort of know sort of stories in the UK where people have decided that they're going to wear in each of their different online meetings a different form of, of headwear to try and give a sense of, of, of joy and, and to make those meetings ever so slightly bearable. So, again, um, the hat that had perhaps largely sort of passed out of fashion now, in a sense, finding um, a new role, new discussions as well and a lot of stuff on social media about sort of cosmetics tips and things like that. So I think more generally that the the mask and the many, many options that are available from sort of high street retailers to um, sort of couturier all um, offering um, their own version of masks that we can buy. And so it's very much become a fashion accessory. But that I think forming part of a a broader kind of, if you like narrative in, in fashion that focuses more attention on the face and the head and I think over the sort of um, coming months, as we see this sort of fashion industry begin to um, respond with um, new seasonal wear, it'll be interesting, I think, to, to reflect on how the, the face and the head is treated in those future collections.
2: Yeah, and I, had an, I read something where someone was talking about how so much more emphasis is being put on eye makeup now, for instance, too, because that's the part of the face you're going to be focusing on through everyone else's masks.
3: I think that's absolutely right. Um, I mean, I, I'm certainly, as I said on Instagram, sort of TV. There are lots of tutorials, but I also think, again, because we're so focused now through the sort of Oculus of our our laptops or desktops on such a small part of the body, right. the more that we right. can do, I think, particularly through sort of makeup, to create a sense of of, of personality. Um, and I think makeup is, is 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 important to do that. But also, I think it's it's that sort of routine, that idea of um, using cosmetics in, in, in various forms but giving us a sort of sense of getting ready for the day I mean that's something I certainly feel that that I've really missed that sort of selection of the wardrobe the um you know sort of products that I might want to wear the sort of fragrance all those little sort of rituals that you maybe sort of take for for granted but nonetheless do give you a, a psychological um boost have have largely gone so I think the more we can I think our, our finding that we can incorporate some of those rituals, or, or carry on and, and elaborate some of those rituals, when it relates to our um, our faces, I think that gives us a comfort that I think we all feel we need.
2: Yeah, and I think it's really interesting too when you think of the face mask now as being an extension of that, of getting ready to go out in the world, and people really have put a lot of thought and care into now incorporating the face mask not only into their daily routine but into their lives and. and and it being maybe an extension of their outfit or matching their outfit, something that they can feel good about putting on.
3: I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think there's you know lots of sort of social media sort of footage of that you know using the mask and incorporating the mask into your kind of wardrobe so are you going to match it are you going to sort of complement it with with what you're wearing and again interesting in terms of the masks you can buy depending on your priorities as a um as a consumer um you can either sort of buy masks in sort of packets where you almost have one for each day of the week and, and different color variants or you could maybe have something that is um, vintage in terms of using sort of secondhand and, and, and sort of age-old sort of cottons or, or, or other materials. Um, or even, I mean, what um, I've seen in um, in London, sort of Savile Row, if you've got one of your sort of favourite tweed suits, you can have the face mask that, that is made from the same um, sort of Harris tweed or, or something like that. So however you dress and however you conceive of your identity, I think what we're seeing is that a demonstration of the sort of pervasiveness and adaptability of the fashion industry, that there are masks to, to to accommodate. And I think really across the spectrum, what this whole crisis has shown, I think for me, is, is again that, that point about one, how pervasive fashion is, but just how adaptable the, the, the fashion industry has been. And in, in some ways... That, that possibly is one of the sort of industry segments that, that has been perhaps something of a success story um, and a silver lining, which we all need d- during this um, time.
2: Oh, absolutely. And something else actually that I think is quite interesting too, because we just talked about the face mask as as part of fancy dress costume, right? But now it's becoming this kind of ubiquitous accessory around the world. So to transition from something that once would have made you stand out in a crowd, you know, my husband and I were talking about this, how like if you wore these face masks maybe six months ago, you in America, at least, I know there are some countries that wear them more than we would normally. But to go out with... With the, with kind of a fashionable face mask, you would have stood out. Now you stand out if you don't have a
3: face mask on. That's absolutely true, and I think in some ways um, an American example for me at least that that bears out that point so so brilliantly um, is of course in the presidential contest between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Where, you know, one candidate's um, insistence on wearing a mask and the other's insistence largely on. Or not, and I think you know an interesting Vogue article on Biden wearing a mask, and the 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 title of this article was something like "This is what responsible or effective political um, power looks like." Right. Um, so I mean, demonstrating. I mean, regardless of our of our political views, but sort of demonstrating. I think so brilliantly your point that something that was not seen and in certain parts of the world would have almost seemed incongruous, if not maybe even slightly ridiculous, now has just so quickly become the norm. And again, I think demonstrating, you know, the sort of contingency of, of, of the sort of clothing that we wear, how that is sort of predicated on social values and norms and how quickly they can change.
2: Absolutely. Your book is chock full of fascinating case studies that really demonstrate the various ways that fancy dress has been employed throughout history and across various cultures around the world. And to me, there were some very surprising and unexpected ways in which uh, fancy dress has been used historically. And I want to highlight a few here. Beginning with the assassination of Gustav III of Sweden in 1792, you write that this is the first known case of regicide through fancy dress costume. Can you tell us more about that?
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, this was, again, an extraordinary case that I knew of before I started research on the book, but didn't know a great deal about and a lot of the records that I mean, not surprisingly, that relate to um, Gustav III's assassination are in Swedish. So it was a good test of my my linguistic skills. Um, <laughs> it, it also occasioned a trip to, to to Stockholm, where the costume that Gustav III wore um, when he was um, assassinated is, is is on permanent display. So that was was nice when you can incorporate research trips. But at the risk of maybe being indulgent, I just thought I'd read maybe the the first paragraph of this section, because I think it offers a sort of distillation of some of the themes and links, I think, to what we were just saying about the problem and fear that the, the mask could incite in people. So on the evening of the 16th of March, 1792, Gustav III of Sweden was shot and stabbed in the lower left of his back during a masquerade ball at Stockholm's Royal Opera House. He had been wearing a fancy dress costume, but one that did not conceal his regal identity. The shooter, ironically a former captain of the King's lifeguard, was dressed as a black domino, as were his aristocratic accomplices. Shortly after the king had arrived at the opera house, an anonymous hand delivered letter warned of an imminent attempt on his life. These threats were not uncommon, and the danger was downplayed. Even after the attack, the king retained his composure. He did not complain of excessive pain and was able to walk. Noise and crowding meant that many revellers were initially oblivious to the attempted regicide. Panic only set in when shouts of fire, a ruse to create pandemonium and allow the attackers to flee, sparked a rush for the opera houses exits. The King's injury was serious. The shot, which had contained two lead balls, rusted tacks and scraps of lead and iron was not easily extracted and the wound turned septic. 13 days later on the 29th of March, Gustav died. Throughout the medieval and early modern periods, rulers had feared the unrest that masks were thought to facilitate. But Gustav III's death is the first known case of regicide through fancy dress costume. Um, And what I think I liked about this, episode in the book is it demonstrates, I think, particularly for the 18th century, but I think more broadly, the sort of 16th and 18th century through that that period, that porous boundary between political reality and theatre. This was a time really across much of Northwestern Europe where monarchs were... Um, engaging in the mask, which was a kind of secular performance through fancy dress that glorified their rule. They were encouraging the construction of opera houses and using through kind of theater and and the stage um, almost a sort of an adjunct, um, the, these live performances, a means to broadcast messages about the necessity of their of their continued rule. So it is almost in the ultimate irony, Gustav III, who loved dressing up, who loved the theatre, um, and indeed wrote for sort of theatre as, as as well, wrote his own sort of plays, um, ended up um, having this sort of. Quite well, very macabre, but nonetheless quite sort of theatrical and 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 dramatic death. And I think what the what this section tries to do is to think about how Gustav the Third worried about the assassination attempt. Obviously aware that he'd then um, been attacked and was dying, uses fancy dress to try to. Um, almost stage manage his exit from the world and maintain uh, a sort of semblance of royal authority to prevent chaos. In the same way, I think the king's assassins—so his former life guard, but then his sixteen accomplices, who are all dressed identically—as if that wasn't a clue—they're um, using fancy dress almost, I think, as a sort of psychological solve. Coming back to that point, I was making about a psychological distance to overcome the enormity of what they were doing. They're killing a king. They're going against an anointed ruler. That's pretty awesome stuff. Um, And I think the fancy dress is a means by which they can do the deed, but maybe distance themselves slightly from it, I think.
2: And when you say they were dressed as dominoes, can you clarify what that is for people who
3: might not know? Yeah, so a a domino um, costume um, consists largely of a black costume. Um, although there could be um, colour variants, but mainly black. And it would be a covering over the top half of the face so covering the eyes. It would then usually be with a black tricorn hat, sometimes with a feather, sometimes not. And it would then be a long flowing black cape. Um, over the the shoulders. Sometimes it's referred to as a sort of Venetian costume. It, it's probably a a look that we might most readily see in contemporary photographs or historic illustrations of what costumes revel costume revellers would have worn at the Venetian carnival. So it's, it it almost, I suppose, your kind of fancy dress costume 101. It, it's your basic fancy dress.
2: And I love that you talk about the king's aestheticism of politics, which is something I've never really considered. He orchestrated, as you said, um, kind of this very theatrical, performative exit of his life, quite frankly. He maintained his levee or his um, morning ceremonies. I guess you can see this illustrated in the film Marie Antoinette um, quite well, where people kind of come in in the morning and help you get dressed, essentially. And he maintained that even while he was dying, correct?
3: No, absolutely. And I think it is that sort of the importance of quite literally keeping up appearances, because I think that helps maintain the order of governance, yeah you know, this was still a period where you would very much look to your monarch as the sort of lodestar uh, and the sort of talismanic figure so if the monarch is in a, in a, a poor um sort of poor health or making absurd decisions or is a tyrant that obviously is going to massively destabilize the political situation in the country so if the monarch is sort of carrying on as normal as much as he can um, with his injuries i think that helps maintain that sense of order against what I suppose is a sort of act of domestic terrorism. But I think it's also a way, and this is what I try to explore in the section of, of, of Gustav and his own, if you like, psychology, trying to Deal with this um, awesome and awful attack on his being, his personal being, but also his anointed being as a monarch, knowing probably that the end is nigh, that he can't do anything about it, but so adopting then this persona enables him to almost slightly distance himself from the the fears that almost certainly he would be uh, would be feeling
2: so this kind of disproves the frivolity and fun. <laughs> Uh, that is often associated with fancy dress, really showing that fancy dress can be imbued with so much more. Um, And case in point, you have an entire section in your book dedicated to the use of fancy dress as employed by the Ku Klux Klan in America, which is not a relationship I otherwise would have made uh, prior to this book, but it's a very powerful one. In what ways did members of the Klan use costume to support, a fancy dress costume specifically, to support their white supremacist agenda?
3: I I think you're right. I mean, I think this was the section of the, or one of the sections of the book that... I think for me was most challenging, but I think also in terms of its reception, I knew might be the most challenging. And I think the first thing to say is that I'm talking about the Ku Klux Klan during its first iteration, so during the iteration of e- Reconstruction Era, so from about sort of 1866 through to 1871, and it was during this period after the Civil War and still political um unity in in some way some ways um yet to sort of be fully achieved that we have the sort of clan emerging i think that the clan is is drawing on existing traditions of performance to fulfill its segregationist agenda so it's drawing on traditions of minstrelsy of the carnivalesque of the circus and again i think it's using that sense of of otherness the incongruous Um, in some ways, to frighten the black families, individuals that they're terrorizing at night. We have these very vivid descriptions of costumes that will have large fangs, that will have horns, um, and that clearly, when these attacks are taking place at night, it is about trying to disorientate, to drive fear into the hearts of these individuals. Um, There's also stories in accounts that survive of clan members, either playing music or making animal-esque noises. Again, if we're thinking of sort of different senses, you've got almost like a visual overload, you've then got the noise as well, so a sense of confusion, bearing in mind that this is taking place after you've been sort of quite literally, in some instances, snatched out of your bed. So it's all very sort of dizzying and, 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 um, and, and frightening. So I think that if the visual, it's, it's the shock, it's the fear that the, that the costumes instill, But I think what I tried to do in the book is move that dialogue kind of perhaps forward a bit and also suggest that it's about the clan members themselves trying, you know, and and some of them very much aware of, 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 you know, the fear that they're instilling and and, and having sort of quandaries with that. It's again this idea of costume as psychological soul. By dressing as something other, it creates in some ways a shield through which they can undertake night after night, in some instances, these really quite barbaric acts against people that they they otherwise would know. I mean, that's one thing that I think looking through a lot of the accounts and documentation that were recorded um, of clan attacks And this is a point that other scholars have noted as well, is that often black victims were able to identify their white assailants because they lived in the same community. And and sometimes you have descriptions of uh, the black victims being able to identify specific individuals because of their clothes, clothes that are being worn underneath the costume. So you get this, um, you know, sort of almost different levels of identity. You know, a clan member, you know, wearing their conventional daily garb, and then over that, they're then wearing this sort of gruesome, fearsome sort of visage um, as they um, undertake their 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 acts of terrorism. And I think that's particularly interesting and and, and challenging from a sort of analytical point of view when you have instances of clan members during this period dressing male clan members dressing as women and that I think again is quite interesting when we think about what's going on here um, in terms of visually that sort of destabilizing but again I think it's also a way, and and, and and some scholars have written about this, this idea of if a man dresses as a woman, um, he's almost in a sense saying that, you know, in, in playing with his male identity in this sort of loose way, he is more than a man. It's sort of almost fending off a sort of castration anxiety. And that I think is what a lot of these clan members are feeling. Um, their role has been displaced by the civil war a civil war in which a significant member, a number of um, women did participate and some women did fight in the um, civil war because they knew that men who they thought should have been didn't. Um, so there's maybe a sense of emasculation there or at least an awareness that, that that women can have social roles, active roles in society just as much as men can. But I think also, of course, the displacement through the recognition, gradual recognition that um, black people's sort of rights to property, etc., voting are increasingly being recognized after the um, civil war. So I think, you know, again, by sort of denigrating black people, by even sort of denigrating women to an extent by taking their costume, it's a way of perhaps a bit like Gustav third, trying to use costume to mediate some of the sort of vortex of emotions and challenges that these individuals are feeling, but just cannot cope with.
2: Yeah, and I think our listeners have probably gleaned that this, what you're talking about is fancy dress costume, not to be confused with the white hooded uniform that we often associate with the Ku Klux Klan, that kind of pointed hood and robe that I was actually surprised to learn in your book. It was inspired by D.W. Griffiths, or it's thought to be inspired by his 1916 movie, Birth of a Nation. So film influencing what the Klan wore in the 20th century. But you also write that it's thought that uh, Griffiths' mother sewed these kind of makeshift costumes during the Reconstruction era, which I found very interesting.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that um, Elaine France Parsons has sort of elucidated as, as well in her work on the Klan. But I think you're right. The reason when we then have the Klan existing in its second form from 1915, its refounding in 1915, why is it then that we, as you say, have the conical hats and the uniforms, I think? It is very much, I think, inspired by this film, Birth of a Nation. But I think it's also born of the realisation that wearing the costumes, which are more akin to fancy dress during the Reconstruction era in the 19th century, are problematic. In a lot of the witness reports that um, have come down to us, there are, excuse me there, there are stories of the Ku Klux Klan members almost having to describe what their costumes are meant to represent. So stories of them being moon men or or Confederate ghosts. And you can't help but sort of think, well, if they're having to explain their costume, it's because its meanings are ambivalent. And I think that's always a big problem with with costume. It's going to be perceived by different people in different ways. Almost certainly, the Klan's costume during the Reconstruction era is about fear, But that can be picked apart and and understood still in very different ways. If, however, we go to the 20th century with the predominantly white uniform, if you like, that is much um, less ambiguous. It promotes more if you like a sort of corporate image, which all members of the clan clan would conform to. In in the Reconstruction era, you'd have different clan groupings. There was no sort of centralized um, hierarchy or organization and each different group. Would have its own sort of, you know, costume coherence, but it could mean that, you know, across the southern United States, you uh, know, as it becomes, different clan groups would would dress very differently.
2: It's absolutely fascinating, and something like I said, I never considered before reading your book. I did not know about these early Ku Klux Klan nineteenth uh, century uh, costumes and, um, and kind of their. I mean, they're really using, or this is kind of their early experiments with using fancy dress costume, right, as part of their political um, agenda and something that becomes codified in the 20th century. So as you've demonstrated, fancy dress costume can both conceal and reveal. Uh, In Germany, in the aftermath of World War I, fancy dress costume takes on special significance to a particular group of ostracized individuals. And you talk about gay men and lesbian women, can you tell us about the homosexual balls of post-war Wilhelmine and Weimar-era Berlin, Germany?
3: Sure. I mean, I think we may be, I suppose, as, as um, kind of people aware of, of some of this, if we're familiar with the writings of the um, British author Christopher Isherwood and his series of so-called Berlin novels and they document the period when um, would lived in Berlin in the late 1920s before the Global Depression. You've also got accounts of another Englishman, um, Stephen Tennant, who again lives in, um, in Germany in Hamburg, if I remember rightly, um, during the 1920s. Um, and a lot of these fictional accounts, although they do contain a kind of kernel of truth, a lot of these fictional accounts do talk about the sort of um, evening. Shenanigans when these authors would go to Berlin's, and it was predominantly Berlin, but would go to um, sort of seedy nightclubs and um, sort of burlesque performances, um, cabaret, and where fancy dress would, would feature. And I was really interested in this because, again, I think it deals with notions of identity. And I think, particularly in Germany, obviously, its defeat after the First World War. Um, which ends in 1918. We also have to remember, though, that this is still a very young country. Germany only comes into existence in 1871. Before that, the, the territory that is Germany is a different state. So it's a young country. It's a very ambitious country led by Kaiser Wilhelm II. And so the defeat in 1918 prompts a whole kind of soul-searching within the country through different social levels. So everyone, I think, in the sort of interwar period um, is in the sort of topsy, sort of turvy existence. But I think what that means is that individuals who would have perhaps been marginalized in ordinary circumstances, now even more so, are feeling um, put upon and and forced to live at the periphery of society. And I think that's particularly applicable for homosexual people within Germany's cities, And and other parts of the country, but cities more so is where they tend to tend to live. So at this time, homosexuality is illegal, as it is in most parts of the world. But because of the sort of political and social chaos in Germany after the First World War, um, it means that there's perhaps a bit more license, a, a bit more of an opportunity, perhaps, for people to express themselves in Sort of evening gatherings, uh, etc. And that's why I think for people like Christopher Issuewood from Britain, um, why Berlin becomes becomes a, a, a draw. And what essentially happens is that you have a network of homosexual individuals who advertise by sort of word of mouth and sort of um, surreptitious sort of um, contacting of, of friends, etc. Balls that would then take place, sometimes involving up to eight hundred people, and. The theme would be fancy dress. And this would be a moment where these individuals who are persecuted, these individuals who are living a life that the state would regard as illegal, can have a moment of, of escape. And again, I think it's that idea of costuming here is almost a sense of, of, of world making. The commission of a fancy dress, the making of a fancy dress, the preparation for these balls would be something to look forward to. It would be something that would give these individuals a strength and support, which is not necessarily provided by the society, certainly the government um, around them. And so I, I think for me, this sort of section in the book is one of extreme adversity that these individuals are facing, but also I think the hope that can be provided Um, In the sense that if the examples of Gustav III of Sweden and the Ku Klux Klan show how perhaps fancy dress can be worn to insulate people to perpetrate harm or even evil against one another. I think what for me this example shows, the homosexual balls in Weimar and before that Willemey in Germany, is the way that fancy dress can give and instill in people a sense of, of hope. Um, that they can explore through the medium of fancy dress an alternative reality, a reality in this context where they are accepted
2: right, and I think you write something like the private selves that need public acknowledgement, and this was really a special place where they could they could get that, even if it was temporary I
3: think so I mean absolutely, I mean there are moves during this period to repeal legislation that um, prohibited sex acts between men or the simulation of sex acts. And that's sort of, I suppose, going on um, at at this time period. But um, of course, all of that, the, the, the measures that are made during the Weimar period, Germany's new government after the abdication of Kaiser Wilhelm, all of that progress is, of course, halted the minute that Adolf Hitler becomes chancellor in January 1933.
2: Right. That's exactly what I was just going to say. This is such an interesting period to study because of, of the progress that is made. And it's part of the 1920s era. Um, but then, yeah, like you just said, it all comes to a screeching halt by the, in the 1930s.
1: Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm-hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. So join
2: us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun— Yeah, you get it every time.
1: And if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary, cannot be combined with any other offer.
0: Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
2: So on your podcast, Dress Fancy, you and Lucy have repeatedly addressed fancy dress as a form of political activism and protest, and your book is no exception. Can you tell us about the use of fancy dress as a form of civic protest at the Sydney's annual Mardi Gras parade?
3: Sure. So um, Sydney's Mardi Gras parade begins in 1978. It has then been um, kind of largely continuous since then. And initially, the event is first held, as I said, in 1978 to commemorate the Stonewall riots in New York. And act as a sense of sort of solidarity with a homosexual community in another part of of the world. But I think what's interesting when I was looking at the example of, of Sydney is the constant debates that organizers had in the first years, the first decade or so of the Sydney Mardi Gras of the role of a fancy dress. And I think there were were various concerns here, and and again reflects on some of the points we've mentioned. Some of the organisers wanted um, Sydney's Mardi Gras to include Fancy Dress on the view, on the basis that it would demonstrate that the homosexual community was not to be feared, that it was inclusive. And so harnessing, if you like, that sort of sense of the the democracy of fancy dress, that in fancy dress you could be anyone of any status, any background, it it, it doesn't matter. There was then, I suppose, a counter argument to that, which we, we touched on at the very outset, which is that fancy dress is trivial. And if you are trying to mount a annual parade that is going to be the sort of clarion call to change legislation within Sydney across Australia to have lawmakers and society at large recognize the homosexual community. Why on earth are you associating this with fancy dress, which as I said is trivial, we're we're going to be the sort of laughing stock. So I think in in the first decades of of this sort of Mardi Gras parade, there is that sort of tussle, there is that debate between on the one hand, can fancy dress help us or actually on the other hand, is, is fancy dress going to frustrate our cause? And also, I think within that debates about what really is the point of Mardi Gras? Are we doing it just to have a kind of knees up, a celebration? Or are we actually doing it as a form of protest to quite significantly materially affect change. And so I wanted to include this in the book because I think it, it demonstrates, as we've kind of discussed already, that that ambiguity of costume, how when you're in costume, it, it can mean different things to different people. But also, as you say, how fancy dress can be used to harness a political agenda. And I think it's that idea almost of the the disarming power of laughter. Laughter, is a way of breaking down barriers. Laughter, sort of jocularity and, 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 and fun is a way of dissolving tensions. And it's in that circumstance when our sort of critical antennae might be sort of less alert that you can then possibly push through a more challenging agenda that wouldn't or set of views that wouldn't normally be considered. I mean, I suppose we only have to think about just our, our interactions with individuals. You know, how many times have we sort of told a joke or made a sort of attempt, a, 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 a sort of a funny comment to dissolve a tense situation? Or, I mean, I do this all the time with my students. I'll I'll try and say something funny before I say, right, now we're going to do this. This is your next assignment or something like that. <laughs> um, um, but, you know, to to win people onto on our side. And so I think that's, in a, in a sense, what the, sort of Sydney Mardi Gras is trying to do to use costume, its inclusivity, it, it, its sort of um, democratic elements that anyone can get involved, anyone can make these costumes to demonstrate that the homosexual community in Sydney, but within Australia more generally, is not to be feared, but is to be taken notice of. And again, I think that's a point that is evident from... American um, sort of Mardi Gras traditions as well, and also other forms of um, sort of protest. It's very, very difficult for incipient political activist movements, particularly in the sort of 1970s, 1980s, to get media attention. Largely during this period, media is sort of controlled by a more sort of conservative agenda and so, if we use the example of America and the sort of AIDS movement, sort of marches and etc., that's simply not being covered initially by the American media because, in terms of AIDS again, homosexuality, that is not something that that news organisations, media organisations, really wanted to touch and get involved with. But by staging quite dramatic and sort of all-encompassing, bold, street events, this then becomes something that the media can't ignore. And I think if you are going to have a sort of activist agenda, you, you need the, the media to spotlight that. that. That gives you your kind of fuel. And I think, again, we're seeing that in contemporary iterations if we're thinking of, of women's marches, Um, with the sort of pink pussy hats, etc. You you need something that is going to have that element of provocation. So it gets the sort of media networks um, to to spotlight these events. Um, And when you then see that, those legions of people marching through the streets of of cities, which increasingly is becoming a sort of common sight um, on our televisions and social media around the world, Then you've got, uh, you know, something that governments, the rulers, if you like, that they cannot ignore. And so, as I said, in a kind of incipient way in the um, 1970s, 1980s, this is what I think Sidney Mardi Gras is trying to to, to grapple with. Can we use fancy dress to move our movement forward? Is it going to hinder it? I mean, the conclusion ultimately is that it does advance it. But I, I think those initial debates are really interesting.
2: Yeah, in case in point, I just want to read one description that you wrote from the 1983 parade. You write about a bearded man wears a white spotted wedding dress, a costumed tiara, and cuffed fingerless lace gloves. In his right hands, he holds a placard decorated with what appears to be a silver tinsel that proclaims in all capitals, it takes balls to be a fairy.
3: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, would that i mean that that placard wouldn't have worked or made much sense on its own, but it, it's the use of the fancy dress that draws you in as as, as a member you know uh, of the public passing by on the street you want to question it um but it does it in a way that your attention is is caught not in an aggressive way but but through humor um but it then makes you i think as as a uh, as an onlooker interested to question what are the motives here what's going on what's the story? And then, of course, you're aware of the issues, and then that's how I think that you know Sydney Mardi Gras and other movements um, that are analogous, as I said, find their footing um, to then be able to affect change at a at a government legislative level.
2: So I want to kind of switch gears a little bit and move around the world um, and talk about the masquerade and fancy dress traditions in West Africa, which you write about in your book. These two terms, fancy dress and masquerade, are not synonymous. Nor are these necessarily traditions to be confused with those of European influence, although there does appear to be a lot of crossover in many ways.
3: I think that's true. And I think it it, it comes back to where we started this discussion in terms of thinking about terms and definitions. I mean, you're, you're right. If we're thinking about West African traditions of fancy dress within Africa, they they do talk about fancy dress, they do talk about masquerade, but these are loan words from Europe, and so they are invested with quite different meanings. Um, and it's within um, African countries, for example, that you you don't get in a, in a lot of the countries and languages a, a sort of single word, for example, for mask. So. This, again, in, in terms of thinking about a definition that would work across different cultures and chronologies was a bit of a challenge. But I think I wanted to include West African traditions of fancy dress and masquerade in the book to almost act as, as, as a foil to sort of demonstrate that when we think about fancy dress, if we think about it at all, we're not just thinking about a European or sort of North American um, sartorial phenomenon or cultural phenomenon. We are indeed talking about something that is just so, so prevalent. And what I think is very interesting with this example is that there were traditions of live performance within particularly West African countries, but across Africa, but it, it's West Africa that I, I particularly look at in the book. There were live performance um, traditions within um, Western Africa before European colonization and, and, and um, empires um, spread into the uh, into the continent, but it is... Western, largely British traditions of fancy dress that are then, if you like, exported to West Africa. And I then think you get an interesting series of cultural exchanges because what tends to happen is that in Ghana, for example, Ghanaians include elements of Western fancy dress, incorporate them within their own traditions of live performance, almost as a kind of retort to kind of subvert British rule, British political and cultural um, hegemony. And I think that that way of, as I said, the Ghanaians, but other countries within West Africa using fancy dress as a sort of subversive means of defying imperial rule is really interesting and i think interesting too that when in 1957 ghana gains its independence of british rule one of the very first things the new president of an independent ghana does is to create a um, annual what becomes an annual fancy dress celebration and still this is going on today it's celebrated at new year and it becomes a vehicle through which the country can demonstrate unity and, and, and togetherness. And so that idea of fancy dress Within the example of West Africa, Ghana specifically, of being initially a form of resistance to British rule, but then becoming a means socially and politically that it can help to convey messages of an independent Ghana post-1957. Um, I thought, again, was really interesting in helping to demonstrate, as you've suggested, that the fancy dress can be fun and oftentimes it is, but it is far from frivolous.
2: Absolutely. And your book is a huge testament to that. So your book is called Carnival to Catwalk. So I find it only fitting that we conclude today with a discussion of the role of fancy dress in fashion. How are these two seemingly polarizing displays of dress negotiated on the runway historically and today? I mean, especially today.
3: I think that's true. I mean, you know, a lot of fashion designers, a lot of brands, a lot of people um, would suggest that you couldn't get further from fashion than than fancy dress. But what's so interesting and and just marvelous for the for the publication of the book is how that that is changing very rapidly. I and mean, if we just think back to Paris Fashion Week um, this year, you had on the Stella McCartney catwalk. Models that were dressed head to toe in kind of animal right. onesies, um, you know, and, and the message there was tr- sort of demonstrating that um, Stella McCartney as a brand is cognizant, is is aware of animal rights and, 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 you know, trying to support and protect those movements and institutions that are looking after animal wel- welfare. But again, that was a stunt. It was a stunt that was done harnessing incongruity and laughter to make a very serious point. Um, in the same way, if we think of Moschino, again, Paris, um, they're sort of almost sort of Marie Antoinette-themed right. show. I mean, there are lots of sort of fancy dress tropes there. And I suppose we're thinking perhaps more of it, and its it, it, it legacy will live on because the Costume Institute um, exhibition and, and, and Met Gala so far has been uh, um, postponed. But last year's um, Met exhibition and gala on CAMP, Again, if we think about a lot of the costumes that were worn on the as it became pink carpet, um, but also the clothes that were displayed within that exhibition, whether your um, listeners have seen the exhibition, went to see it or, or have looked at the catalogue or, or social media. A lot of the clothes that were on display. So from the likes of Thierry Mugler or Walter Van Beirendonck demonstrate i suppose some of the tropes of fancy dress that i've you know kind of alluded to so humor incongruity uh, creativity and exuberance use of materials cut color that are perhaps not common um, and i think it does chime with a greater sense and a greater awareness from the street in terms of women's marches, et cetera, that I mentioned, or indeed these fashion houses, that we can use our clothing to voice concerns, um, to voice our ideals at a time when, even before um, coronavirus, I think a lot of people around the world were feeling a sense of, of disconnection politically and, and socially. I think there has been a theme now and lots of commentators have, have spoken about it, but a, a widespread sort of malaise. And I think the idea of communicating or nonverbal forms of communication, which, again, are very democratic, they're very immediate, And that idea of using our own bodies to proclaim our values is so kind of elemental and with that so powerful that I think is why we're seeing that more and why that kind of connection between fashion and fancy dress that might seem very disparate, actually, I think we're beginning to um, see a, a, a fusion and overcoming in some ways that distaste and distrust that was maybe sort of set up in the 1970s, 1980s, as I said at the outset.
2: Yeah, and I also wonder if fashion is reacting to contemporary events and kind of acknowledging this, you know, this kind of innate desire to retreat to fantasy as almost like a coping mechanism to deal with kind of what's going on in the world. You know, you mentioned Moschino's collection, Jeremy Scott, and we've talked about this previously on the podcast, was sending women literally dressed as cakes down the runway. (laughs) And fancy dress, like fashion, it does not exist inside a vacuum. It's constantly in conversation with the world around it. Costume in the time of coronavirus hardly seems appropriate. However, it does feel like it has a place in today's uncertain world. Would you agree with that? And why, why would it be relevant today?
3: I mean, I completely agree with you. I mean, it's, it's interesting. So um, we're recording this on a, on a Friday. And I don't know whether your listeners will be aware of this, but as I think is, is the case in America um, as well, a lot of, um, in fact, all schools now have been um, closed down. Obviously, there's the um, message from governments the world over to to, to remain at home. And as a response to that, um, a lot of parents are now being encouraged, um, if not compelled, to educate their children at home. Um, Well, in the UK, there's a presenter um, called Joe Wicks, who has done a lot of um, sort of sport, sort of television and, and, and media. And so he's become essentially the, um, the, the media, um, the, sorry, the nation's PE teacher. And so at every morning he has this YouTube channel and does a sort of 9.30 PE lesson for the children who are being home educated. Um, and what's interesting is that today on apparently Fancy Dress Friday, he delivered his weekly um, gym session wearing a Spider-Man outfit. And again, I think that taps in directly to your point about using fun and frivolity to actually get through a very difficult time. Um, And just this week, there are stories in UK newspapers of people dressing in fancy dress to be able to cheer people up. So in Manchester, where I'm talking to you from, there was the story of another guy who dressed as Spider-Man who would visit children, albeit at the distance that is is apparently acceptable um, in terms of two meters at the moment, but would visit children who are isolated to cheer them up. There's also another story um, from the north of England of a postman the mail service is still working, but a postman on his rounds dressing up in different outfits so that obviously when he's seen on his rounds, particularly by children, that again cheers them up. Um, and I, I'm sure um, himself, too. So I think there is very much a sense that during this time of fear of quite profound um, anxiety, those transforming effects of fancy dress, which we've alluded to, uh, particularly when we're talking about the the homosexual balls, I think, and and, and, and Mardi Gras, that transforming, that almost insulating, in in, in some ways, um, ability of fancy dress to, to give us, I suppose, quite literally a second skin to be able to... Physically and psychologically give ourselves a bit of distance so we can contemplate moments of, of, of stillness and, and, and clarity in, in what is a very extraordinary time. I mean, the words that are being used to describe this period in, in terms of unprecedented, extraordinary, as I just said, you know, it, 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 is, um, it is challenging. So I think fancy dress there is very much, as we're seeing from those examples, um, having a role for people.
2: Yes, absolutely. And actually, I was thrilled to see earlier on Instagram, Australians have joined a bin isolation group online, and they're sharing pictures taking out their trash in costume. I don't know if you've come across this.
3: No, I haven't, no.
2: But just there's so much joy that we can find in dressing up, and maybe our dress listeners out there will consider employing Fancy Dress Friday in their own lives during this um, kind of, as Ben said, unprecedented time. Ben, thank you so much for being here today. This was a real pleasure
1: to have you back.
3: Not at all, Custy. As always, a great joy to talk with you.
1: Thanks for joining us again, Ben. I love how he not only interrogated and critically analyzed fancy dress costume casts, but but expanded its definition beyond the Eurocentric, American-centric definition. Like fashion, costume is also something that can easily be dismissed as frivolous and without merit to further scholarly inquiry. And he's done this really excellent job of disproving those associations. And I never in a million years, you know, would have associated fancy dress costume with the KKK. I did not think that was going to come up today. (laughs) Oh, me either. Believe me. And Ben's research
2: is so valuable on so many levels, especially, and not least of which is how thought-provoking each case study he presents in his book is. And we, of course, only covered a couple of the the many case studies that he he really analyzes in detail in his book. And he really has helped to change my relationship with dressing up and really instilled it with meaning that moves beyond mere frivolity and fun, although it is certainly those qualities, of course, which still underscore its importance as an act of self-expression. And again, I just want to reiterate that this interview was recorded in April, and in light of all that has happened, especially the Black Lives Matter movement, I don't know about you, April, but it's just bizarre to kind of look back and listen to this period when government regulations were just being put into place and the world was scrambling to pivot and adjust. It feels like an entirely different time. Yeah. I mean, none of us really knew what to expect toilet gate feels like another <laughs> time and place like it feels like paper ages gate. ago <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh thank you toilet paper gate yeah um i would say it's much harder now than you know than then to consider using fancy dress as a form of escapism but i would argue perhaps that it's more important now than ever too we need we still need very much need that aspect of our lives yes
1: for sure And on that note, dress listeners, may you consider the value of costuming in quarantine next time you get dressed. to tune in this Thursday for our mini sewed. We love hearing from you. So if you would like to email us, please do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you will find images accompanying each week's episode. You can follow us on Facebook at dress Podcast without the underscore. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry,
2: and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. Catch you Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.